You know, one of the things that defines people over a certain age is television. We all watched the same shows when we were growing up, really didn't have much of a choice. But we all had that in common. That's something younger people don't have anymore. Hi, everybody. Along with Mark Middleton, I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. And every day we could count on going to school and having great conversations about who we saw on Johnny Carson the night before or how cool that alien was on Star Trek or even exchange one-liners from Ronan Martin's laugh-in. Yeah, basically we had three choices, ABC, (laughs) NBC, or CBS, and that was it. You know, shared experiences are something that do bond generations together, and it could be television or music, many things really. On today's program, uh, you're going to hear from people who've played a part in that, including one of the most decorated test pilots since Chuck Yeager. What Art Tomasetti did was so significant that his plane is now in the Smithsonian. We're going to ask him why it is that more people don't know his name. And from the music world, when you are unique, you can make an impact. You're going to meet Macy Gray, who has turned her her personal style, both vocally and visibly, into her own brand of pop stardom. But first, one of those television shows that Bill was talking about that most of us uh, of a certain age watched was called That Girl. We're about to catch up with the legendary Marlo Thomas connecting with our passions of yesterday to help make a better today. Well, that's what we call Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer, along with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And isn't that a great phrase, Growing Bolder? It's not about getting older. Aging isn't easy, and to do it well, we all have to start growing bolder. And one way to do that is by making a difference, and that's what our next guest is all about. Amen. Boy, she certainly is. And, you know, Bill, we all fell in love with her, at least I did. And uh, so did I. When she starred on the TV show That Girl back in 1966, I can still see her walking down the street in that white hat. She's always been a trendsetter, a forward thinker, extremely creative, and of course, always caring. She's won a bazillion awards, Emmys, Golden Globes, a Peabody, a Grammy. She's earned even more philanthropic honors, including the Presidential Medal of Freedom. So let's welcome the one and only Marlo Thomas. Marlo, how are you doing today? Thank you. Thank you. I can't wait to hear what I have to say, for goodness sake. <laughs> oh, my gosh, we can't either. Uh, you know, the pandemic <laughs> has really kind of accelerated or at least made more clear the disparity uh, in health, in health care, in health access and health affordability and all of that. How are things going for you guys at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital? Well, we've we've worked very hard to uh, keep the pandemic off the campus, and thank God we have. We've separated the campus into um, two areas, the purple badges and the yellow badges. The yellow badges people could could be near the children the purple badges like the scientists and others could not be near the children so we really had to work hard uh and also we did only allowed one parent and none of their siblings to come which is very unusual we always have the whole family but we had to cut that down no visitors i haven't been there since march uh but we've kept the plague off the campus and that's important because we just want to make our children well 
We want them to get rid of the cancer. We don't want them to also have COVID. Mm-hmm. So it's very important to us to be able to focus on that cancer, whatever it is, and their brain and their eyes and their legs, their blood, whatever, wherever their cancer is. And thank God we've just kept going, kept strong. The scientists are there. The doctors and nurses are there taking care of these children who come to us from all over the world um, with diseases that other places have not been able to cure. And uh, we feel great responsibility to the children of the world and also to the scientific and medical community across the world. It really depends on us to send our discoveries quickly out, and we and that's what we do. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's exciting for me to, to go there, and sometimes I'll see a mom and dad walk in with a child, and the mother and the father have their eyes as big as saucers, terrified, uh, because they have a death sentence from another hospital, and the little kid looks limp and weak. And then six months later, I'll come back, and that kid is running around the hall, and the mom and dad look like real people again. And it's just like, I think to myself, thank God I'm, I'm doing this. Thank God I'm a part of the chain, of the link in the chain of, of, of being able to help these children live. And so that's why this time of year, our thanks and giving campaign, our motto is, Give thanks for the healthy kids in your life and give to those who are not. So there are kids right now really fighting for their lives. And while we're uh, buying gifts and thinking about the good things in life, thankfully that we have our healthy families and the little presents that we can send each other, uh, that there are families who are really scared right now. And so we just add a little something to your purchase. You can go to org and just hit Donate Now. And know that that dollar is going to really help. It costs us $3 million a day, $3 million a day to keep this research going and the hospital going uh, and pay for the food and the housing and everything for these families. Well, Marlo, thanks for what you do, and, and thanks for who you are as well. We we want to, right off the top, wish a happy birthday to Phil, who turns 85. And you just had a birthday, early 80s, and you also recently celebrated your 40th anniversary. You both look great. You sound powerful, wonderful, healthy. And I have to ask, because all of us wonder, how good is life in your 80s? I think it's fine. You know, Phil and I say to each other all the time, I don't feel any different, do you? I mean, I still have the same drive I've always had. Thank God my memory is there. I still love working as an actress, and I'm working on scripts right now to get ready to do when this pandemic is over. We can go back to work. Uh, I miss the theater. Uh, You know, it looks like the theaters are going to be closed for a while. I did two plays in the last five years and and just loved it. But... um, we, we feel pretty much the same, and also we're together, you know, so life seems the same. I think we're very blessed. You know, marriage is a cushion of life, that's for sure. And uh, we're very blessed to, to have each other, to like each other, as well as love each other. And we have fun together. We read to each other. We, do, we cook with together. So we've been having a, a, a pretty nice time together. We're talking to uh, that girl, Marlo Thomas, and of course, Phil is her husband, Phil Donahue. And and Marlo, you and Phil wrote a book, actually, that's called What Makes a Marriage Last. You interviewed couples like uh, Billy Crystal, Alan Alda, Elton John. What did you learn? What does make a marriage last? I'll tell you, it's something really interesting. Every one of those couples works really hard at it. They didn't run away when things got rough, whether it was infidelity 
or illness like Michael J. Fox three years into his marriage to Tracy Pollan, he found out he had Parkinson's, which is a lifelong diagnosis. Or, or Kevin Bacon and Kira Sedgwick lost all their savings to Bernie Madoff. I mean, these are huge issues. Sick children, one couple had a child that died, uh, breast cancer, all the things you can imagine. And yet they laugh and they love and they stuck it out together. They went to marriage counseling if necessary, but they were committed to the relationship. They didn't run for the escape route when, when the going got tough. But that's, that really, to me, w- w- seemed, after we met all of these people, that it was a, that was the secret. It's like, tough times don't last, one of them said, but tough people do. And it's true. You know, you get through that tough time, and on the other end, you still have each other. And that makes your bond really unbreakable. I mean, I, I don't think, and I, I hate to jinx it, but I don't think anything could break up my marriage with Phil. We have been through it all, with sick kids and dying parents and job retirement and all the stuff that couples go through. Uh, but we've come, we've come through it together. For all you guys have experienced, and you really have been through the gamut, could you leave us with, with any kind of advice, or, or what's the moral to the Marlo Thomas story? Well, I think the moral of a good marriage is that you both want it that you don't run away when things get tough, and that you listen to each other. One of the things that almost all the couples talked about was having a sense of humor, that sex is important, romance and love is important to to kindle and rekindle as time goes by, but also to listen to each other. We don't really listen. You know, something is bothering you, and you you, you say what it is, but are are you hearing or are you listening? And listening is a big one. To really listen. You know, one time Phil said to me, I don't want you to do anything because I'm a fixer. He said, don't do anything. Just listen to what I have to say. Don't jump for the phone. Don't look for a solution. All I want you to do is listen to me. And it was, that was about 10 years into our marriage. And I thought, wow, this is a real lesson. Hmm. I said, you mean I don't have to do anything? He said, no, just listen. And that was a big lesson, that he just wants me to hear his problem or his issue that he has, but I don't have to fix it. Hey, hey Marlo, before we let you go, I know you got to run. One final question. You have, have built such an incredible life on your own. It's easy to not mention the fact that you are Danny Thomas's daughter. He was such an amazing guy. I, I just feel like every time we talk to you, I want to mention that he would be so proud of you. Do you still think about him, and, and do you think about what you are doing with your life and, and how it would please him? Oh, my gosh, yes. I think about him every day. I uh, even have conversations. Um, but he doesn't answer back, but I talk, and then I, I say, Dad, what do I do here? And uh, get some kind of an idea. But, uh, no, he's very much alive. And he's very much alive to all of us in our family because we're working for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, and his spirit is alive there. You know, everything he thought of, the fact that take care of the families, nobody pays, science and and, and medicine together, that the, the, the doctors and scientists eat with the children, that everybody is a family, um, all those goodwill things that are, that are there are, are my father's doing. And he, he, he embodied that, the place embodies his spirit. And so he is alive, very alive to us. And I know a lot of children of people, they don't have to be famous, but when their moms or their dads left them, 
with some spirit, with some wonderful idea of what life is about, to take care of your neighbor and, and worry about others and, and not just focus on yourself. A lot of people have been given that from their parents, and that's how their parents stay alive in them. What a great way to sum that up. Marlo, thank you so much. Thanks for, like I said earlier, what you do and who you are, because you're one of those people that there's so much more to you than people see on the screen or in plays. You're very inspiring, and and that makes a huge difference to us all, the great Marlo Thomas. Thank you so much. And, you know, Mark, isn't it interesting how, you know, both she and her father, it's that sense of purpose that they have and that's identified with them that kind of makes them stand out from the rest. There are many great comics from the 50s and 60s and talented people that we don't remember, but yet I remember Danny Thomas like it was yesterday. Bill, I think in your introduction you talked about uh, you know the fact that uh, she has a purpose. She continues to make a difference and that aging isn't easy. And, and I think that that's, you know, we all need a purpose. We can't all be Marlo Thomas, but uh, we, we all can make a difference. And it's a purpose that gets people up in the morning. It's a, it's a shared purpose that she and Phil obviously have. So, you know, I think that that's a great lesson we can learn from her uh, about one of the keys to successful aging. And his story really is amazing when you think about it, because you think in your own life, okay, what what could I possibly do to make a difference? Well, you know, I can talk. I'm a, maybe I could visit with kids. Whoever told Danny Thomas that his legacy would be in healthcare with kids with terminal illnesses? Mm. Guy had no medical training. He's a singer and a choke teller. And, and look what he did. His legacy is a place where kids who have been told there is no hope can turn to to find hope. And she, you know, she made something that connects to a conversation you and I had on this program a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, where we, we, we shared the, the Egyptian belief that you die twice, uh, once when you take your final breath, and then a second time, uh, the last time that people speak your name. And, and Marlo said that her dad is very much alive today. Uh, he talks to her. Uh, they don't talk back and forth, but, but he does stay alive, uh, you know, because we are talking about him today. And because she still you know, cherishes his memory in many, many ways. It's really interesting. You know, life and legacy is held together by that shared sense of purpose. And, and like she said, when you instill that in your own kids, maybe not by lecturing, but just by doing and the way you live your life. That's when you get that sense of well-being, and that's when you feel that yours is a life well-lived. It was great to have a chance to visit with Marlo Thomas, you know, not just to, to, to hear the energy in her voice at the age of 82 and to know that she and Phil Donahue at the age of 85 are still loving each other, still loving life, still looking to work, and still out there making a difference. How cool is that? Coming up next, for all of us who thought they just don't make them like Chuck Yeager anymore, but we're about to meet another aviation hero. We're about to learn the legend of Art Turbo Tomasetti. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... 
Florida's Paradise Coast, Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, the ideal place to recharge after a uniquely challenging year. The area's commitment to health and safety with the Paradise Pledge means visiting with confidence. So for amazing meals, incredible sunsets, and endless outdoor adventures, only Paradise will do. Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades. Learn more at paradisecoast.com. Welcome back to Growing Boulder. I'm Mark Middleton along with Billy Schaefer. And you know, they call the era our parents grew up in the greatest generation. But that doesn't mean there are no more heroes or pioneers. In fact, we're going to introduce you to one of them right now. One of the people out there, Bill, who are making us proud. He is a combat veteran of the Gulf War. He has been awarded the Legion of Merit, the Defense Meritorious Service Medal, the Meritorious Service Medal, and has been president of the Society of Experimental Test Pilots, and he is still growing bolder in his life. He is U.S. Marine Corps Colonel Art Turbo Tomasetti. How are you, sir? Good. How are you doing today? Man, it is so great to have you here. There's something about heroes, and there's something about people of greatness that we forget, and that is, at one time, you were Artie. You were the kid <laughs> in school, right? You were an ordinary person, but you saw an opportunity to live an extraordinary life. And the difference between you and others is you stood up and you said, yeah, why not me? Yeah, I think, you know, I like to talk to people about it and they ask you, how did you get to where you are today? And I tell you, you know, if you imagine when you were younger at some transition point in your life, either graduating high school or graduating college, and someone came up to you and said, hey, there's a lot of paths you can choose in your life. Uh, and if you particularly, this particular path, you will get to do amazing things, work with extraordinary people, be part of significant events, know that what you are doing matters, is relevant. And when you look back on that, knowing that everything you did made a difference. I mean, I don't know who wouldn't opt to choose that path. And I believe, uh, you know, partly through my own doing and partly through help of others that I was able to get on that path. You know, the decision is much easier, though, when you know that you came out of it. Uh, you, you didn't know that when you went in. You didn't know what would happen. In fact, Art, you flew 39 combat missions in the Gulf War, uh, which is remarkable and, and, and which we thank you for. Uh, I think one of the other things that, that makes you stand out, too, is, you know, people sometimes hear you talk and, you know, you make it sound, well, it was very easy. I said, yes, I was here. This is what I did. But you decided after those combat missions, you go, you know, I, I think I want to be a test pilot. So you applied. And of course, they accepted you right away. Right. Uh, unfortunately, no. Uh, I knew from the time I was a little kid that I wanted to be a test pilot or astronaut. I, you know, I, I grew up in a time where... Things were happening with airplanes that were very exciting. We were putting people on the moon. It was all formative for a, a kid my age. And I knew that's what I wanted to do. It sounded awesome. It looked awesome. And when people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And if you told them test pilot or astronaut, hey, they were smiling and happy. That seemed to be a good answer. So when I got to the point where I was actually able to apply for a test pilot school, I was very excited. I sent my application off. I waited anxiously for the results to come back and got that first message back that said I was rejected. And 
the next time I applied six months later, got a message back saying I was rejected. And that would go on for four years and until my seventh try when I finally was accepted. So one of two things happened. Either they recognized that I actually might have had something to offer to the test pilot community, or they just got absolutely tired of me sending in applications all the time and decided to move me forward. But see, that's such a great lesson for all of us. I mean, we get rejected once or twice. Sometimes we feel like it's the end of the world. This was your dream. And six times they told you no, but you hung in there. Perseverance. What, where do we find perseverance? You, you know, I think part of it is, and I like to talk about resiliency. And to me, that's one of the key components of resiliency is being able to persevere every time in life and anything you choose to do, you're more than likely going to run into obstacles, places where the hill gets a little steep to go up, things that get in your way, things that want to obstruct you. And even just days when you're feeling like I just can't get there from here. Um, but you know, cause you've heard this, you've seen it in movies, you've heard it from people talking about it. You've read it in history books that perseverance absolutely always pays off and you can take that to the bank, right? So if you know for a fact, that persevering and continuing to push forward is going to eventually get you where you want to be, then that should be enough encouragement to make you want to take that next step uh, and then the step after that. Okay, folks, we're talking with our Tomasetti, an amazing test pilot, and we're still, I'm still in the point of the program where we're kind of setting up who he is, giving you a little bit of background before we get to the amazing stuff that is going to make all of us look at ourselves differently think differently and reach for greater success than we have before. But, but Art, you weren't just chosen to fly the X-35. That's what it was then. You were part of the team that designed it as well. Tell us about, you, you didn't expect to be the, the guy who tested it in the sky, did you? No. In, in fact, uh, we talked about all those tries to get into test pilot school. Had it worked out differently in any of the other timing, and I would have missed that opportunity for the X-35. But there I was, you know, fresh out of test pilot school, being told that, hey, you're going to be part of this test team that's going to work on this experimental airplane called the X-35. And right now it's just a bunch of drawings on paper and a bunch of schematics. It may or may not ever come to be anything. And I knew that I was going to be involved with the development. And that meant everything from how the airplane was going to fly to how the cockpit was going to set up, not only for that experimental airplane, the X-35, but for the airplane that would follow if they won the contract, which we know today as the F-35. And I was highly motivated to want to be part of that. I had been a Harrier pilot coming from my time before test pilot school. I had seen, uh, Bad things happen in that airplane to close friends. I, my first four years of flying the airplane, I attended several memorial services for people who were involved in accidents that had, you know, what we refer to as bad days in the airplane. Uh, and I used to think that it was me. It was all on the pilot. I had to be better than the airplane. And then I went to test pilot school and I found out, you know what, you can make an airplane that's better. You can make an airplane that helps to take care of the people who fly it. So having that opportunity to say, hey, I can get in here and make a difference. I can do something that's going to make the future better for other people. I was highly motivated to push forward and do that. Well, and as this what should be a major motion picture continues, we move up now to July 20th, 2001. They called it Mission X. And you went down in history as the first pilot to score a hat trick in one flight. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Mission X was uh, 
one of the ideas that they had for the competition, because we were in a fly-off at that point between the Boeing airplane and the Lockheed airplane. And the Lockheed team believed that if they could demonstrate a short takeoff, a supersonic dash, and a vertical landing all in the same flight, which had never been done before, that that would give them somewhat of an advantage and something that they could really market very well. And I never expected that it was going to be a government pilot, let alone me, to go fly that because usually those first flights are done by the contractor pilots. So it was exciting. It was busy. I mean, it was nonstop, second to second, something I had to do, except for the part where I was supersonic. I finally got to supersonic. We're over the dry lake bed at Edwards Air Force Base, same place that Chuck Yeager had broken the sound barrier decades before. And the engineer said, hey, just dwell there for a few seconds. We want to collect some data. So for about five or seven seconds, I didn't have anything to do except just keep going straight, which was pretty easy. And I got a chance to just kind of look out the side and look down and I see myself over the dry lake bed and knowing what had transpired uh, in the X1 decades prior. It's like, whoo, that was a lot to take in and register. Uh, But then right away, it was back to business and continue on with the rest of the flight to get to that final vertical landing touchdown. And when the engine came back to idle, I probably breathed for the second. I think I breathed twice during the whole flight, probably breathed for the second time at that point. It's just incredible. And folks, just to underscore how important that flight was, your plane is in the Smithsonian. So is your flight gear. I mean, tell us about that honor. And, and I know that was huge, but I also happen to know that your heart is in making a difference. Absolutely. Um, you, I, I don't know. You know. There's so many emotions that could come from saying that something you did and some a machine that you operated is sitting in a museum. And there could be a, you can extract good from that or you can extract something other than good from that. Uh, I extract good from that because I know that it was it's an indication that what we did, and I say we because it was absolutely a team effort and, and nothing significant like that happens without teamwork. But what we did made a difference and what we did was significant. I happened to be the lucky individual who was in the cockpit driving the airplane. Um, the, the dozens and hundreds of other people involved from getting the airplane ready to building that airplane to the airplanes that were flying on my left and my right for my safety chase pilots that day to the people who were in the control tower, making sure that when I was my time to come into the runway, everything was clear. That incredible amount of teamwork is what I see when I look at that display. Most people see this really cool airplane and most people see this flight suit sitting in a display case, but I just see an indication of teamwork and what people working together focused and committed can truly achieve. Wow. You know, you know, I also think it's important to say that there are a lot of people that, that go out and try to, to do things that haven't been done before, set records, and generally they're, they're in it for personal glory or a personal challenge. But what you did was done out of a sense of duty, and, and that's a, a huge differentiator, at least in our eyes. And folks, here, here comes the best part of the interview, at least from my point of view, because so much of what Art's learned over his career and throughout his life it applies to everything. It applies to us too. Even the things that you and I face in our own lives, we all hit walls. We come up against mountains that seem insurmountable, have serious problems in our life. What do we do when we come across a mountain? Yeah, there's uh, there's an analogy I like to use, and it's a rock climbing analogy. And 
and it's based on my observations. And I think that there are, generally speaking, there's two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are, if you were to look at a mountain or an obstacle in front of you, will sit there and they'll talk about how big it is, how tall it is, how dangerous it is, how much work it's going to take to get across. And they'll talk all, a long time about everything they can talk about, but not move any closer to negotiating that obstacle. And then there's the other kind of people. And those are the kind of people who will look at that obstacle. They will look at that mountain. They will step one foot. They will put one hand on and they will start to navigate that obstacle. And once they do that, you will find that there's basically there's four elements that those people who will get on that obstacle need. Uh, they need to have the confidence that they can go up because that's generally speaking for getting over a mountain the way you want to go. So they need to have that confidence they can do it. And that confidence comes from within and that confidence can come from leaders instilling and inspiring and enabling that confidence. Uh, they need to be clever. They need to know that sometimes the path may not be straight. They may need to take a, a left or a right around something in order to get there. They need to use their cleverness to figure out how to keep moving to negotiate that obstacle. They need to have courage because it's hard to navigate an obstacle, no doubt. And then sometimes you'll find that you've got to go and take a step back. And it's, it takes a lot of courage sometimes to admit that that step you took, that direction you were going was wrong. And you need to regroup reassess and take a step back. And then finally, and perhaps the most important thing is once you put your hand and foot on that mountain, you need to have the commitment to never let go. And when you find people who embody those things I call the four C's um, and you put those kinds of people together on a team, my experience says there really is nothing they can't achieve. I mean, that's that's fantastic. I mean, this should be in every high school in America because it makes it so clear how how to approach things in life. Confidence to go forward, the cleverness to change your route if you need to, the courage to go back and regroup and the commitment to never stop, to never let go. This is great advice. Let me ask you this from all your experiences, from all you've been through, the good and bad. What have you learned that about life that you can pass along to the rest of us? Yeah. So I think the the key things, and we touched on them a little bit, is I, I have gained an appreciation through all of my experiences on the value of teamwork. People coming together and working together, it's, it's just truly incredible what we as human beings can achieve when we do that. Uh, I know, I think I know how a good leader should act and how a good leader should enable those kinds of things to happen for a team. And I think there's, there's this sense of ongoing obligation and duty. Yes. I served my country for 28 years in uniform, but you know, I look at from, from the time I can start remembering things, I, I, I kind of equate every one of my experiences to, you know, another tool I've added to this tool chest of mine. So in the beginning, I only had a few tools. I had a screwdriver, I had a wrench, I had a hammer. I couldn't build very much. I could build very simple things. And over my career and over my experiences, I've learned more and more. So I've added to that toolbox. So now I have this really elaborate toolbox that has come from all these experiences that I've had. I can build some pretty amazing things. So I can't just let that toolbox sit in the garage, Right? I got to do something with it. I, I acquired all these amazing tools from all these life experiences. It's time now to go build something with that, to go make something of that. So I think those are the things that I would take away from all of my life experience. What can be accomplished when great people work together as a team, how a leader should act to enable those kinds of successes, 
and this obligation that you're never quite done with paying back and doing something for the greater good, using those tools you've acquired to make the world a better place. That is fantastic. It's like you're preaching from the Growing Boulder playbook. <laughs> it's, it's, it's so good to hear that we all want to be on Team Tomasetti. <laughs> and there, are, there, there aren't enough leaders like you, like Growing Boulder, out there just, just reminding people that we can do amazing things and we can reach for more no matter what stage life we're in. Well, that's exactly right, Bill. It's why we have to do what Art says and continue to look for ways to make a difference, to serve, to make life better for those around us. Great life lessons from Art Turbo Tomasetti. Up next, how she took a unique vocal style and look and became one of the hottest pop singers going. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by our partners at Florida Blue Medicare. It's important to know what's covered, so together we've created a guide that makes Medicare easy to understand. More information at growingboulder.com slash guide. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. One of the best things you can do for your health doesn't come from a pharmacy. It's not a pill. It's not a supplement. But it can make you feel better like that. Here's aging expert Annette Kelly. I'm sure you've heard that in Japan, physicians give um, prescriptions for an hour in the forest. What does that actually mean? An hour in the forest? Why would you need a prescription for that? Just go. But we don't. But to wander in the green space is uh, so refreshing and uh, thought-provoking as well as life-giving and it pulls you out of yourself even though there's no one else there and it's a, it brings you to something that you often talk about and that's connection yeah the yeah. power of connection yeah. and even if you're home alone mm -hmm. you can use zoom mm -hmm. you can reach out sure with a video call. Oh, absolutely. You can use technology in ways that right. we've always avoided before. Yes. And actually even just phone calls, Bill, you know, and notes. I've been, um, all through the, the uh, pandemic, I've been writing notes several a week to people that I don't see because I'm not out to see them. And um, generally older people because their contacts are down like mine are. And... Uh, the responses I've gotten have, have been really overwhelming. You know, you'd think it was a, you know, a big present or something, you know, because we don't write notes anymore. I grew up in an era, so did you maybe, of notes. And uh, I learned how to write notes, you know, from my parents. And, uh, and I'm enjoying it so much, doing it. And then the response has been fabulous. So what kind of a connection is that? That is something that a, a person receiving a handwritten note knows they were the object 
of someone's intention. Without a doubt, looking up the address, whatever the words say, it can be very simple. When you're the object of someone else's intention, and I'm not just saying attention, but intention, that has to be so health-providing that um, we, should, we should do it more. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer. Reach out to someone. It'll make a difference in their lives and yours. More insights and information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Macy Gray is a true artist with one of the most recognizable voices in music. She's a Grammy winner with five Grammy nominations. She's released 10 studio albums and has a film career to boot with appearances in Training Day, Spider-Man, Scary Movie 3, and many others. And when I knew that I would be speaking with Macy today, I took a deep dive into the Macy Gray catalog, which I highly recommend. Sweet Baby, Still, Do Something, A Moment to Myself, uh, Buddha, and of course, I Try, which won the Grammy for Best Female Pop Vocal in 2001, the video of which has over 53 million views on YouTube. Uh, Macy's been compared to everybody from Billie Holiday to Janis Joplin to Tina Turner. And like all of them, her journey has not been an easy one, but she's continued to grow and evolve and to figure things out, which is something we are all trying to do. So it's a great pleasure to speak with and to learn from Macy Gray, who joins us now from her home in Southern California. Macy, it is early there. How are you doing today? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, You have been busy during the pandemic. Unlike many in your industry, you've been working on an album. Uh, I understand you opened up a beauty shop in Hollywood. You performed uh, at uh, at an NAACP event. You participated in that great live stream for David Bowie. But what I want to talk to you about this morning, if we can, uh, is something else that you launched during the pandemic. Uh, My Good, a nonprofit foundation, your very own. Tell us what My Good is all about. Uh, My Good is... uh was founded in, um, well, was became, what do you call it, official in July 2020 with the 501c3 and all that. We're here to uh, support the families who've lost loved ones due to police violence. So in the aftermath of, of those stories you hear on the news, you have moms and dads, kids who are so devastated that they can't go back to work, funeral costs that they can't take care of so we're here for that our number one is uh, mental health services they are all in deep need of someone to talk to to help them get back on their feet and and that's what we do and we also have an advocacy leg that where we're um on the ground you know fighting for for change so that that it can stop happening so often it's not an anti-police organization at all we don't have anything against the police it's just um for those families who are left behind and and suffer through who are really suffering while we're protesting and making signs and having opinions they're the ones that go home and and you know with a big hole in their heart and, and so we're here for them 
Well, it's an amazing thing that you're doing, Macy, and and I wonder what led you to this because you know I listened to an interview that you did with Oprah many years ago, and, and in your own words, you described yourself as an ass. Uh, you also say that you know after your sudden fame back in 2000, you you became addicted to drugs. So 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 how does again in your own words a drug addicted ass become someone who launches something, uh, you know that that is so philanthropic and so designed to help others? Well, besides being an addict, I don't have a drug addiction. But um, besides that, I'm, I'm a good person, and, and uh, I, I feel for people. As, as a mom, um, that's the first thing I think about when I hear those stories, because I had someone close to me lose his son, and I saw what that did to him. And so when I hear those stories, that's my first thought. It's, it's oh, my God, the parents, you know, because they have to... I suddenly, you know, out of nowhere, left to everything changes, you know, um, and they'll never be the same, and they'll never get over it. So we, you know, that's that's just it was just a personal uh, thing for me since I saw it firsthand. But it's it's very needed. It happens to about there's about a thousand cases in the U.S. every year of, of police violence, and I I want to be clear on that. It's not, you know. Um, Sometimes it is justified. Sometimes the police are defending themselves. But regardless of, of who does what, you still have a family who is going to suffer because of it. So so that's that's what it's about. Asking everybody to go to donate. I mean, mygood.org and donate and, and support. Would really appreciate it. Uh, it is amazing what you're doing, especially during the pandemic. You know, I, I mentioned your your first uh, album, your debut album, uh, on how life is back in 1999, and of course the single that we were all singing, "I Try," and we're, we're still singing. Uh, you know, that launched you to international fame immediately, uh, and, and you say you really didn't handle that well. What have you learned uh, about? Evolution, personal evolution, life in general, uh, Macy, as as you've you know lived over the the last few decades. Um, I've learned to listen. That's become a very fine art of mine. I've become very good at listening. When you listen, you learn a lot, and uh, and and then you know what to do. You know what I mean. I think um, when you're a lot younger, you know, I have kids in their twenties, and then. They don't listen. They don't know how to listen, and they're not interested in listening. So um, it's definitely an age thing, and 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 it's it's it just for me. It was just about growing up. Um, there's no real book for that, and I didn't have like a mentor like saying, "Don't do this, don't do that," and that's not like to pity me or anything, but just saying that um, I made a lot of decisions based on someone who was very new at it and didn't know, like, what a good decision was at the time. So I made a lot of bad ones. But I don't, it's not like, you know, I'm not one of those, oh, fame is a horrible thing and being successful is horrible. You know, I loved every minute of it. I just, you know, I wish I had done a lot of things differently like everybody else. And, but, you know, here we all are and, 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 you know, you go from here and you just try to do better every day, that's all.
Well, you are teaching us all that it's never too late because yours has been an amazing journey. Uh, and in fact, I mentioned, obviously, you've got one of the most distinctive voices in all of music. But, you know, as a young girl, uh, your speaking voice obviously is also unusual. And that made you very shy. You were picked on because of that. How does a young girl who's afraid to talk learn that she has this amazing singing voice? Um, it was, I was college and uh, I had always taken piano lessons. I, I knew music and when I went to college um, I was always ended up being friends with one of the music majors. I went to the film school at USC and the film school is kind of right next to the music campus and so I would always end up hanging out with like people who did music. It's, you know, I guess it's one of those subconscious things. You just gravitate to certain people and so I was always in bands and um, just singing for fun, not really not thinking I could sing. or It was just so much fun to me. I just loved it. And uh, and then and then I found that people thought my voice was interesting. And so I just kept doing it, you know, not really having this big thing that I was going to be a star one day. But then uh, when I got out of school, I just started to take it seriously and... Um, and I went for it, you know, and I did it. Well, you have done it, and we've all appreciated it. Uh, we know you've been in the uh, studio working on your 11th album. Cannot wait uh, to, to to hear that. Macy, I'd love to talk more, but I know you got to run. Uh, folks, check out uh, her nonprofit organization. It is called My Good. Uh, Macy Gray is doing good. It's uh, at mygood.org. Check it out and, and help it out if you can. Macy, thanks so much, and uh, appreciate all you're doing. we come back what's on mark's mind we'll stick around because this is growing bolder support for growing bolder provided by Florida's Paradise Coast, Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades, the ideal place to recharge after a uniquely challenging year. The area's commitment to health and safety with the Paradise Pledge means visiting with confidence. So for amazing meals, incredible sunsets, and endless outdoor adventures, only Paradise will do. Naples, Marco Island, and the Everglades. Learn more at paradisecoast.com. You're listening to Growing Boulder, and there is a lot going on in the world today. And out of all that we're going through, learning and experiencing all of these things, Mark, what's on your mind? You know what's on my mind, Bill, is is our mutual friend, Harold Gard. Uh, I shared on this program not long ago that I got up one Saturday morning and drove to see, uh, to meet 90 
five-year-old Gil Walton. And I was so glad I did because he passed away not long afterwards. And, you know, it was all the motivation I need to get up another Saturday morning, which I did this past Saturday, and and drove to the other coast of Florida to, to see Harold Guard. Both of us are double-dosed now, so we were comfortable getting together. Uh, Harold is now 98 years old, and we hadn't seen him in maybe three years. Uh, he still paints, doesn't paint daily. He's now uh, on a walker. Uh, but he's sharp, as sharp as ever, uh, and and he's lonely, you know. And we talked about how the pandemic has exacerbated uh, the epidemic of loneliness in this country. And I read a study recently where, you know, we talked about as soon as the pandemic hit, we locked down nursing homes to protect them. And, and people with advanced stages of dementia started dying one after the other. It was It was the lack of social connection that literally killed them. And, you know, so I guess what's on my mind is just a passionate plea to anybody out there that if you know someone that's in their 80s and 90s that's alone, reach out and say hello. Harold lives alone. He was so happy to see me, so energized and so grateful that I made the time to, to come visit him. And, and, I, and I don't want to position this as though I was doing him a favor. He did me a favor. And, uh, you know, and Bill, this is the thing uh, that I think we all have to realize is the value that these older voices have. We live in a culture that no longer, you know, esteems the, the life lessons that people in their 90s can, can teach us. And, and Harold taught me a lot. Yeah, one of the things, Mark, that we hear from people all the time is that even when you're in your 90s, you still feel inside yeah. like you're any other age. So sometimes we'll talk down to people that are older. Sometimes we'll treat them, you know, almost like little kids. But their bodies may limit them, but their minds, especially when you talk to somebody like Harold, his mind is amazing. And their experience and their desires to make a difference. So I, I took a camera. I'm going to share some of this interview before too long. But here's one thing he said. Uh, you know, it reminds me of a quote I read one time about one day a group of elder women will take over the world because they still have the desire to do that. I asked Harold about his painting. He said, at 98 years old, I honestly think I'm doing the best artwork I have ever done. But I consider a lot, am I wasting my time? And perhaps my time would be better spent trying to figure out how to bomb City Hall. And of course, he didn't mean that literally. He just meant it metaphorically that there are many, many big problems in our culture that he'd like to help solve that are more important than making another painting. Uh, but he can't do it because nobody pays any attention to him. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, this this is almost like a whole new era of people that are in their 90s, 80s, or whatever, who are still vibrant inside, who need those mental challenges, not just for them, but your best point was they have a lot to give to us as well if we will only listen. Folks, you'll find examples of how amazing people like Harold Gard are on growingbolder.com. We encourage you to go there because that's the gateway to everything Growing Bolder, the magazine the television show, everything else to help you live the best life you can moving forward. That's it for Growing Boulder Radio this week. We'll see you next time. The Growing Boulder Radio Show is a production of Growing Boulder, LLC. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nannis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.